gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, come to the dispatch.com to check out all our wares. Um, if you can become a uh, paid member of our community, that would be awesome. Uh, I think we're really firing on all cylinders with a lot of content that um, is actually worth paying for, which is a rare thing out there on the internet these days. And um, you know, you'd also be giving us a vote of confidence <clears throat> in what we think at least is kind of important work, and we would appreciate it. If you can't totally understand, just uh, keep reading the free stuff, and maybe one th- at some point we'll convince you or your circumstances will change. Today's episode is sponsored by me. Um, we fortunately don't have any ads today. I don't say fortunately because we don't like our advertisers. We love our advertisers. But sometimes we get in the middle of these, um, uh, you know, weird schedules. And um, sometimes it's nice not having to panic about finding some odd segue or something like that. And so, um, uh, I am the sponsor of today's podcast. And, um, if you want to, uh, support today's sponsor, why don't you become a paid member of the dispatch or buy one of my books? But, you know, frankly, I'd rather you become a paid member of the dispatch. Um, but there's nothing stopping you from doing both anyway. Excuse me. So, uh, it's been a long week. And um, I can't imagine that other people who, at least people who regularly listen to this podcast and are interested in the things that I'm interested in, don't, didn't think it was a long week as well. Um, I wrote today's G-File, well, I should say I wrote Wednesday's G-File, sort of on the stuff I was talking about here, as well as in the Kevin Williamson podcast and on the Dispatch podcast too. Uh, you know, sometimes I get ideas from talking about stuff and decide to, to write them down. And the Wednesday G-File was about this whole new multi-ethnic workers party that is supposedly rising Phoenix-like from the ashes of Donald Trump's defeat. And um, I still basically don't get it. I don't get it um, substantively. I don't get it as a actual bit of political analysis. Um, uh, it seems to me more like a bunch of politicians and a handful of mostly sincere, well-intentioned, but wrong um, eggheads who see an opportunity here that I don't think is really there. Um, but, you know, there are a bunch of people working on the strange assumption that, first of all, Donald Trump, as a matter of policy, dedicated his presidency to um helping the working class and the forgotten man and all that. And I understand why some people might be mistaken to believe that if they really, if they really agree with him on trade, then okay, fine. That's one thing. I just think that he and they are all wrong about trade for reasons Scott Lincecum could tell you about if you ever put down the nachos. Um, but beyond that, you know, the, the extent to which he supported the working man or the forgotten man or lower middle class, whatever label you want to put on it, was almost entirely rhetorical and usually just rhetorical in the sense of being self-serving rather than actually being 
evidence of a real concern on his part, but you know, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. And he actually is really concerned about the working class and all that. That's fine. That's good. I'm concerned about the working class. Um, but as a matter of policy, you know, the idea pushed by people like, uh, Tom Cotton and Marco Rubio that, that, you know, Trump proved that, uh, worker-focused policies were the key to his success and that therefore we cannot go back to the status quo ante of five years ago. I just, uh, you know, I don't get, I don't get the logic unless I'm right, which I think I am, which is, it's not so much about real logic or policy analysis or anything like that. And more to do with an attempt to claim the Trump mantle, um, an attempt to be the inheritor of Trumpism. And the reason why that doesn't make sense to me politically is I don't think coming up with turgid, by my lights, largely unpersuasive policy papers aimed at improving the plight of the working man is what is going to attract the prototypical MAGA guy. Um, you know, some might be. Uh, there's diversity in the Trump coalition, but um, the presupposition here is that the people who were attracted to Trump were attracted on this sort of workers' party kind of policy. And the reality is, is that the stuff that Trump talked about, the stuff that Trump did, the stuff that I liked that Trump did, um, the stuff that he bragged about at rallies were for the most part, you know, trade accepted. Um, and, you know, when they were explicitly about policy, you know, it was the tax cuts that Paul Ryan designed. It were the judges that, that the Federalist Society and Mitch McConnell shepherded through. Um, it was about, you know, killing or allegedly killing Obamacare. It was about, you know, appointing pro-life judges or being pro-life and being pro-gun. And you can go down a very long list of things that were all part of the sort of core basic Republican agenda five years ago and 15 years ago. And so, you know, I don't think Trump actually marked that much of a policy departure from the old consensus, um, about that kind of stuff than is supposed by Cotton and Rubio and these guys. Never, never mind people like Saurabh and, and the other eggheads who are trying to like craft this new workers party agenda. Um, they're, they're basing it on a false premise. And, um, so anyway, I wrote the GFO about that. I got a surprising amount of comments and reaction, um, from readers and, um, and went more viral than I would have expected, particularly for something that you have to be a paid member to read. Um, so I appreciate that. I won't dwell on that any further. Today's G file was for me kind of brutal. I had, um, it was like pulling teeth, trying to figure out what to write about today. Um, you know, I'm trying to wean myself from the Trump stuff, but at the same time, you know, Trump is ending his presidency. Um, in such a way as to basically prove everything I've been saying about the guy for so long. Um, you know, it's amazing in his one of his, one or many, I don't know. Um, I've seen him say it a bunch of times of his post-election statements. He talked about how he was going to be the, um, and I didn't write about this in the G file. So this is, this is a bonus. Um, he talks about how he'll never stop fighting for you, never stop fighting for America, never stop fighting for the little guy, all these kinds of things that he's saying even now or tweeting even now or having people write for him in, in fundraising emails, 60% of which go to his, to retire his campaign debt. Um, but 
actually look what he has done since uh, since the election, or even since the month before the election. He has not gotten, at least on his public schedule, a single intelligence briefing. He's completely gone to ground that he's not going out in public about anything. He's just turned a blind eye to the pandemic, which is exploding around the country. Um, he's playing these weird games at the Pentagon, which, you know, depending on the time of day and the coverage, you can either think are incredibly dangerous and worrisome or kind of pathetic, uh, you know, musical chairs shuffling and payback. I go back and forth on my own about thinking about that, about what, what to make of some of that stuff. And I think it's just, in some ways, it's too opaque and too early to tell. Um, but Steve has been reporting all sorts of stuff about it. And it's, it's, it's weird. I'll just say that it's definitely weird. And whether it's scary, weird or pathetic, weird, I just haven't quite figured out. But my point is, is that he's not, he's not spending his last days in the oval office fighting for America or even fighting for his base or fighting for the forgotten man. He's fighting for himself. He's fighting to try and steal an election or at least have this post-presidency rationale for whatever he does next um, so that he can claim he never lost. And whatever you think about the merits of that, and I think you know where I come down on that, he's not, you know, the election wasn't stolen. He's trying to steal the election by claiming the election was stolen. That's not fighting for the American people. That's not putting the American people's needs first. That's putting his own needs first. And so he's ending his presidency the way um, he began his presidency. And he's planning his post-presidency the way he ran his presidency. It's all about him. The glorious him. So anyway, I didn't get too deep in the weeds and all of that in the G-File, but I bring it up because I did mention Trump because I think the, the news still merits writing about Trump, and I really long for the days where it no longer does. I know I get all of this grief from people about how I'm Trump-obsessed and I can't let go, and I have Trump derangement syndrome, yada, 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 yada. Well... For the same reason I gave up calling myself a never Trumper in 2016, um, I write about Trump a lot because you only have one president at a time and he's the president and what he's doing right now is pretty unprecedented. And, um, and I, I find, you know, it's kind of amazing, um, how you can really sort of, I wrote, I wrote my column about the, my, my first column of the week was sort of about this, you know, for most of the last four years, um, there were an enormously, there was an enormous, not enormously, there was a markedly diverse coalition of groups and interests who all marched under the banner of Trumpism, right? I mean, there was the, um, you know, there were the alt-writers and the sort of neo-Nazi, um, jackasses who for a while claimed that Trump was their guy and tried to make Trump their guy. And in fairness to Trump, I don't think he was ever really their guy. He liked having their support, and I think he quite shamefully refused to say the things he should have said unprompted um, to condemn that support. But, um, you know, Trump's, you know, as I've often said, you know, you know, to the extent Trump is a racist, he's like an Archie Bunker outer borough racist. Um, you know, the pizza shop owner and uh, jungle fever kind of racist. He's not, you know, you know, as I often say, the, 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 the pillowcases at Mar-a-Lago don't have eye holes cut out in them. Um, and, uh, um, but so that was one, you know, very small sliver of the coalition. And then there were, 
a bunch of people who really hated, you know, the neocons or hated, um, or just hated the libs. Um, there were a bunch of people who, uh, just hated, um, Trump's enemies. And he was so useful at, at, at triggering his enemies that that's what they loved about him. Some people just loved that he was a bull in the China shop. There are a whole bunch of, you know, some people actually, you know, were serious protectionists and like that stuff. And some people actually convinced themselves that he was this brilliant manager. But there were a lot of different ideological feathers on the, on the, on the Trump wing, as it were. And, um, but they were often hard to, to disentangle. And this is often a problem in politics by way of digression. You know, um, Irving Kristol years ago, decades ago, made the point that there were basically two kinds of conservatives. There were conservatives who were anti-state and there were conservatives who were anti-left. And I think this is a very useful way sometimes of thinking about politics. This isn't just like libertarians versus social conservatives. There, is, there's a, there are a lot of anti-state, full-bore conservatives, um, and there are a lot of anti-left, full-bore conservatives. And it, but it's often hard in sort of fusionist traditional conservatism to see which orientation um, was driving the car and which one was sort of in the passenger seat, including in individual personalities. You know, one example might be like, um, you know, the, the charter school or, or school privatization stuff, right? There are some people who think that public schools are bad because the government shouldn't be in the business, shouldn't be in this business, right? It's sort of the Milton Friedman government schools kind of thing. And it, it raises their sort of individualistic hackles, the, to the idea of the government, you know, indoctrinating or, or um, you know, uh, forming its own version of a loyal citizen and that kind of thing. And that used to be much more pronounced at the beginning of the public school movement, in part because the, the public schools in, in part began as just sort of a blatantly anti-Irish and anti-Catholic thing, but that's another story. Um, and then there are people who are anti-left. These are people who don't mind the idea of public schools. They just don't like the idea that the left controls the public schools and they're teaching things that they don't like. And uh, you know, so these two orientations um, can sit side by side with each other in an individual and in a movement without you really being able to tell, tease them apart. And it's only at, at certain, it's only at certain, uh, tension points where you can kind of see that some people really don't mind government running things. They just mind the left using government to run things. And, um, and this tension has lived on the right since its beginning. And, um, it's lived in the sort of the conservative heart from the beginning. And I just bring that up as a way, as an analogy to sort of the Trumpist thing. There are lots of different people who support Trump for different reasons, um, among politically sophisticated, intellectually sophisticated people, but they all sort of got to use old fashioned partisan loyalty as a cover for their position. He's our president, stand by our president. Um, don't be a rhino, right? So if you were anti-Trump, you were, um, betraying your party or, and, or the conservative movement kind of thing. And there were lots of people who want, who hated the pre-Trump conservative movement 
and wanted to put their own stamp on it, who used this partisan loyalty to try to drum out dissenters from the ranks of conservatism or from the ranks of the Republican Party. And they all got to do it by exploiting sort of just old-fashioned partisan loyalty. And then all of a sudden, Trump comes along and loses the election. And all of a sudden, sort of like with nuclear fission, um, you see this, you know, this, this nucleus that was formed. I'm going to ruin this metaphor, so never mind. You just see it all pulled apart, and it gets so kind of explosive. And, um, and you see some people who were never really about the Republican Party. They were never really about the conservative stuff. They were about Trump. I'm not saying they didn't agree with the conservative stuff, and I'm not saying that they weren't loyal Republicans. But they're, um, you know, the real test of any political ideology or any political ideologue, and I don't use ideologue pejoratively. You could read my underrated book, The Tyranny of Clichés, for more on that. I, I'm, a, I'm an ideologue. Um, uh, the, but the test of any political movement, any, um, any ideological movement, is uh, w- what you prioritize. Not what you say you believe in, but what things are you going to cast aside in pursuit of preserving the one thing that you really care about? Um, so like, this has always been my complaint about the libertarian movement, or at least the libertarian party. Um, you know, lots of, you know, there are lots of intellectual libertarians who really care about all sorts of things that I care about and all sorts of wonky eggheady things about, you know, privatization and federalism and, and, um, uh, you know, limited government and, you know, free speech, all that stuff. And, you know, a lot of those libertarians are close friends of mine. But as a political movement, the thing that put asses in the seats, the things that got people to show up at the polls was drug legalization. Um, And that's fine. If you believe in drug, I don't believe in drug legalization. I mean, take weed out of it, but the other stuff I'm not in favor of. Um, That's fine if that's your position. But the thing that, um, um, you know, that was the galvanizing thing that, that caused, you know, that, that, that drove the Libertarian Party um, wasn't all of the sort of Milton Friedman eggheadery. It was, um, you know, we want our weed. We want, you know, hemp cures every single illness in the world and you can make clothes and jetpacks out of it. That was the thing that really motivated, you know, the, 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 the libertarian troops on the ground for the most part. And, um, and that's sort of just, you know, it's a rule of thumb and that you, you can tell what someone's real political orientation or allegiances by what they prioritize. And this is a point I made a lot in the early days, uh, in the, at the end of 2015 and the early days of 2016 is that a whole bunch of people who I thought were conservatives of my stripe, um, who had the same job description as me, when the Republican party went a different way, um, they were willing to take off a bunch of their hats, you know, in favor of being a loyal Republican and Donald Trump had taken over the Republican party. And so therefore they had no choice, um, but to, you know, fall in line and support Donald Trump. And it just shows you that for a bunch of conservatives, um, it's not that they're not conservative. It's that at the end of the day, the thing that, um, is the decisive factor is partisanship. And, um, you know, and some people are honest about that. I always give Hugh Hewitt credit for this. I have a lot of disagreements with Hugh, but Hugh always admitted it. He's like, look, at the end of the day, I'm a party guy. 
And I always said to him, and I remember having the same conversation with Bill Bennett. At the end of the day, I'm not a party guy. At least I'm a party guy so long as it doesn't get in the way of those other, of the allegiances that I care about more. Um, and if that makes me a rhino, there are far worse things that have been said about me and that could be said about me. So anyway, you had under the Trump presidency, all of these different allegiances could be held in check because the glue that held it all together and the flag that everybody could march under wasn't nationalism. It wasn't Trumpism. It wasn't protectionism. It wasn't, you know, populism. Um, it, it, it was Trump, right? And, and you could just say, and because Trump was the head of the Republican party, you could just say, look, support the party, you know, and support Trump. And now that Trump is not going to be president anymore, all of a sudden you can see who is um, first and foremost a party guy and who is first and foremost a Trump guy. And I think it's kind of fascinating. And I don't think it speaks particularly well of Donald Trump about um, where those lines divide. And you can talk about all you like about how McConnell and all of these Republicans are still super Trumpy. I'm, you know, I'm not persuaded by that. Um, they're afraid of Trump loyalist voters. They really want to win Georgia. I don't think any of them have been, uh, I shouldn't say any of them. I don't think many of them have been a profile in courage since the election, but you know, Mitch McConnell's first allegiance certainly is not to Trump and it's not really, you know, in a certain sense to the Republican party, it's to his Senate majority. And I don't begrudge him that, that much because he's one of the few politicians, as I wrote a couple of weeks ago, who actually wants to stay in his lane and wants to protect his institution and his power and his role. He doesn't want to be president. He doesn't want to do anything more than hold on to his portfolio. And you can condemn him for it or you can praise him for it. But there's nothing, I think, you know, outrageous about it. Um, and people say, well, he could, put his he could put his country before his party and all that. I hear what you're saying, but look, at the end of the day, um, there are very few people, you know, you, you have to buy into all of the presumptions and assumptions um, of some of the hardest core, most resistancy anti-Trumpers to really claim that, that, that Mitch McConnell hasn't, um, you know, hasn't been patriotic. And, you know, uh, and I'm not saying I think every decision he made has put the country's interest first and foremost, but I could see the rationalizations <coughs> that he went through to do it. Anyway, um, how the hell did I get on this? So, um, so anyway, so now you see, you know, people like Newt Gingrich, Kaylee McEnany, uh, Corey Lewandowski, you know, Peter Navarro, who are sort of like Richard Gere and an officer and a gentleman, they got no place else to go. And they bet it all on this prediction of that Trump was going to be in power, you know, you know, for at least another four years. And in, I think in the back of their minds, maybe even longer, even if he wasn't technically president. And that's why you have Kaylee McEnany making these utterly inane statements this week about how uh, Donald Trump, uh, no matter what, is going to be the titular leader of the Republican Party for decades to come. Now, leave aside the fact the guy is 72 years old or 74 years old, whatever the hell he is. Um, no president remains the titular head of any party um, after they leave office for decades. 
And the idea that Trump will is just simply a fantasy. And, um, um, oh, anyway, so so this prediction thing, that's actually what I wrote the G file about. Uh, some of you may know, um, I've written about it a bunch. I feel like I talk about it a bunch. I always feel like I'm repeating myself, but, um, my second favorite essay by George Orwell, which might make it actually my second favorite essay is this essay by, by Orwell, coincidentally enough, um, called Second Thoughts on James Burnham. And in some ways I would say it's the, maybe it's my third favorite. I don't know. I also love notes on nationalism, but it may be one of the, it may be more influential on me than notes on nationalism or, um, politics and the English language, both of which I think were better or more important essays in the grand scheme of things. But, um, there's something that about the second thoughts in James Burnham essay that really pings my sweet tooth. And among the points that he makes in there is, um, which is sort of what I, I talk about today, or write about today, is that um, straight line predictions about the future are, first of all, almost always wrong. And second of all, they're a kind of power worship. And I'll, I'll start with the first part. Um, you know, there is the easiest form of prediction is just simply say that the, the status quo today will extend off into the future. Um, and that kind of prediction is ultimately always wrong. Um, you know, even the sun burns out. Um, but, you know, this idea, it's this, it's, there's this tendency for people to think that the world as they understand it at this moment is the way the world is always going to be. And for some people, they think it's the way the world always has been. And this idea that um, you can make predictions straight out into the future um, never holds up. And, you know, and, and there are a bunch of reasons for it. Um, but I mean, just sort of on the, on the crassly political level, you know, in, in when I first started reading about politics, I remember everyone talking about how the Republicans had a lock on the presidency because they controlled California. Um, uh, a few years ago, the Democrats thought they had a permanent lock on the presidency because of the, um, the, the, the blue wall. Um, you know, 75 years ago, 80 years ago, the most Republican states in the union were Maine and Vermont and the most democratic states, uh, were all in the South. Um, things change and, um, but more sort of meta than all of that is that, you know, the second law of thermodynamics or, uh, Schumpeter's notions of creative destruction, whatever, you know, intellectual paradigm you want to apply, um, power almost never rests in a steady state, uh, you know, for sure, for a very long time, people thought the Roman Empire would be eternal. It wasn't. For sure, lots of people for a very long time, beyond the normal time horizons that our brains are wired for, thought the Ottoman, Ottoman Empire was forever. It wasn't. Um, you can do this with basically every empire. As I write in the G file, every invincible empire was eventually vinced. Um, and, um, and part of the reason for that, I mean, I, I, don't talk, I don't say this, I don't write this today, but like, you guys have heard me talk about um, Joseph Schumpeter's argument about why, so long as the government doesn't 
um, protect monopolies with the power of the state. Um, monopolies are almost always are all, always doomed. Um, I mean, I, maybe there's some exception for some weird natural monopoly thing like Wakanda with its vibranium or something. But um, in general, in, in a normal market economy, monopolies cannot last because um, the larger scale you get in a monopoly, and you get very large scale if you have a monopoly, um, the more bureaucratic and lethargic you become. And that, by its very nature, because of the market share of monopoly, invites competition. And competition will end up providing the same product, but better, either an improved product, or in terms of like it does more cool things, or um, cheaper, or faster. And so long as the state doesn't create barriers to entry, eventually the process of innovation, creative destruction, competition, will undo a monopoly. And this was, you know, Schumpeter's point about not looking at things as a snapshot. If you look at Amazon's market dominance right now, it looks like it should be permanent. But, you know, the analogy which his biographer used was that of the Titanic. If you looked, took a snapshot of the Titanic leaving port in Ireland, um, it tells you, the picture tells you a lot about the Titanic. It tells you how big it was. It might tell you how you know, cool it was, all these sorts of things. You could, you know, if you, if, if you had a snapshot that was more than just, you know, literal, um, and you had all the data about its manifest and how much they charge per ticket, you could learn an enormous number of things in, some, in, in a sort of snapshot look at the Titanic. But the snapshot of it leaving port does not tell you the whole story of the Titanic. And that's why you have to look at things over time. Similarly, with politics, um, power that isn't well-maintained um, and rejuvenated tends to dissipate. People get bored. Um, uh, people get la- the people in power tend to get lazy. Um, they don't anticipate possible competition. But more importantly, power invites competition. It invites um, pretenders to the throne, right? It, it invites rival coalitions that over time grow because dissatisfaction with the existing power dissipates. And so, you know, like this talk about how demography is destiny, and I don't want to repeat all the stuff I said about identity politics, but, you know, Donald Trump's, you know, uh, election results put the lie to a lot of the demography is destiny stuff. Yeah, Democrats still did much better with most minorities, with all minorities, than Republicans did. Um, You know, except maybe like if you want to get granular, Cubans and Venezuelans in Miami-Dade County. But, um, but Republicans improved their standing with minorities, or at least that's what we're, we're supposed to believe from the exit polls and some of, I think, the more reliable analysis from Sarah Isger. Um, things got better for Republicans with Hispanics, you know, and that stuff from, from sort of the Permian Basin area in Texas and New Mexico is really, really interesting. And, um, And that should be utterly dismaying to people who, and there have been a lot of them over the last 20 years, who've placed all of their bets on this demography is destiny garbage, thinking that simply because people are born with a different pigmentation than Anglo-Saxon, you know, European descended people, uh, that they will always vote democratic. It's just never, it's, it's, it's never made 
sense to me. And, um, and it's always been sort of mildly racist. And it's, it's racist when the left, the, the left's version of it is racist. And lots of versions of it on the right are racist. Um, you know, and this is the part of the problem of making straight line predictions is, is you forget about the role of the dynamism of power, the dynamism of a marketplace, including the political marketplace. And you tend to rule out human agency. You tend to rule out the possibility that people can be persuaded, not just persuaded by, by arguments, but persuaded by facts. You know, um, the, the, the facts on the ground in terms of the, the fracking revolution persuaded a whole bunch of Hispanics that their interests were better reflected by the Republican Party than by the Democratic Party. And, you know, people change. This was what, um, this is one, I mean, talk about getting in the weeds. Um, Whitaker Chambers, you know, had these wonderful letters with William F. Buckley. And he explained why, and I've written about this a bunch, I know. Um, he explained why he could never call himself a conservative. He just simply had to call himself a man of the right. And it's a complicated argument, but the, the gist of it was, was that he believed in what he called the Beaconsfield position, which is named after Benjamin Disraeli, the British prime minister, um, who was sort of, um, among other things, the champion of what the Brits call muddling through. But what, what, um, uh, what Whitaker Chambers was getting at when he said, when he was talking about the, being a man of the right and holding the Beaconsfield position, is that he believed that, um, he said basically he could never let go, I'm quoting this entirely from memory, it's been years since I read this stuff, um, he couldn't let go of the Marxist emphasis on the means of production. And what he meant by that is that physical circumstances change, economic circumstances change, and that drives changes in the culture and in politics and in society. And you can't just hold on to ideas alone. They need to be attached to physical institutions, economic institutions, the facts on the ground. And, you know, the conservatives who liked agrarian society in, in England in the, what was it, I guess the 16th or 17th century, you can make all the arguments you wanted about um, the pastoral life and traditional life and all of that stuff. Um, and the importance of knowing your place and class and, you know, the little platoons and all of that. Um, but they ended up being, thank God, uh, no match for, um, you know, the, the mills, the cotton mills, the, the, um, the new industrial revolution technology that rendered a lot of those jobs, a lot of those settled institutions and communities obsolete. It's sort of like the conversation I had with Kevin Williamson um, this week about Garbit. Garbit is this town that was uh, dedicated to gypsum mining. When gypsum mining was no longer economically value, viable, the, the town ran into rough times. Um, that's not an argument about ideas. That's an argument about facts on the ground changing. And, um, and facts on the ground are always going to be changing because that's the nature of life. And and so these people who, on the right and the left, who make these straight line predictions about what the future will look like if we make the wrong choice, flight 93 election, you know, Trump going around saying a vote for Biden is a vote for an economic depression and socialism and, 
um, you know, and blue cheese pizza and whatever, um, it doesn't take into account that the animal spirits of the society are going to adjust and react in all sorts of dialectic and catalytic fashions. And so, you know, the most interesting thing that happened this week, which happened, I think, on Monday, and I, I wrote about this twice now, um, was Joe Manchin basically taking court packing and getting rid of the filibuster off the table. And, you know, and part of my point about this that I wrote about in the syndicated column is that Joe Manchin, you know, it's sort of a small version of a great man of history thing. Individual choices by political leaders can have profound consequences. Joe Manchin basically did a great thing for America by saying that, but he also did a great thing for the Democratic Party because he took this argument about how the Democrats want to defund the police and usher in socialism and all that stuff off the table for the Georgia race or races. You know, it's one thing to say the vote for the Senate and the vote for control of the Senate is a vote about whether we're not going to have socialism or capitalism. I always thought that was BS, but the BSness of it is vastly more apparent when Joe Manchin, a Democrat, says, yeah, no, uh, they can't do that stuff without my vote, and I'm not going to give it to them. And it sends a signal that all of a sudden, first of all, the stakes of the election are lower, and also sends a signal that not all Democrats are Bernie Sanders types. And that's, in a lot of ways, that's how things are supposed to work, is that the people with power in politics are supposed to use it to force things to go in their direction. And, um, and human agency is a big part of that, you know? And, and the people who've been arguing about this rising tide of, of non-white um, demographics that are going to f make the Democratic Party permanently progressive and permanently in power, um, they're taking human agency out of things. They're assuming that if they can just get, you know, all of these young people, these sort of barista socialist types to show up in huge numbers that, and move the Democratic Party wildly to the left, they're assuming that they will hold all of the Democrats who don't want to do that um, in their coalition. And there's no reason to believe that is true. Instead, the much more plausible explanation is that, or prediction, is that if the Democrats veer wildly, wildly to the left, a lot of people in the middle won't vote for it, or they might split their ticket between, the, between Joe Biden and the Republicans to be a check on that stuff. And smart people who actually care about attaining and holding on to power, like Joe Manchin and Jim Clyburn and these people, will say, shut the F up, because this the defund the police stuff is not only profoundly stupid, I mean, incandescently stupid, um, on the merits, it's terrible politics. Most Hispanics and Blacks do, you know, when asked in polls and surveys, they say, the, the majority of them say they either want, and this was in the height, some of these surveys were done during the height of the George Floyd protests. And most blacks and Hispanics said that they either wanted the same amount of policing um, in their communities or they wanted much more policing. And I think the more policing was the plurality position of minorities. And the same thing goes with, you know, you know, this, you know, this weird Republican obsession with this idea that if Democrats get in power, they're just going to give, um, you know, the keys to the government, to AOC, and she'll ban fracking and, 
and ban cow farts and all these kinds of things. And they don't have, they don't give the benefit of the doubt, the decency of even many, many, many Democrats in this country that they don't want to do that stuff. Or if they do want to do that stuff, they want to do it in a smart and responsible and slow way that doesn't wreck the economy. Politics and political power, um, it's all moving targets. And when, when, when things build up on one side, they invite reactions on another side. And all straight line predictions um, tend to be foiled by this stuff. And then there's this other point that Orwell makes, which is about power. Um, People who make straight line, and this is the part I've written about a bunch, right? You know, um, during World War II, there were these surveys and found that elites were vastly more likely to swing wildly between being um, uh, optimistic or pessimistic about the course of World War II. And, And he has this line in there where... He says, uh, I'll just read you this passage. Um, Let me see if I can find it. Um, He says, suppose in 1940 you had taken a poll in England on the question, will Germany win the war? You would have found, curiously enough, that the group answering yes contained a far far higher percentage of intelligent people, people with IQ over 120, shall we say, than the group answering no. The same would have held good in the middle of 1942. In this case, the figures would not have been so striking, but if you had made the question, will the Germans capture Alexandria, or will the Japanese be able to hold on to the territories they have captured, then once again, there would have been a very marked tendency for intelligence to concentrate in the yes group. In every case, the less gifted person would have been likelier to give a right answer. Now, Orwell's a bit of an elitist back, even back then, and I don't know that the IQ thing so much as the sort of class and education and proximity to power thing is really what he's getting at there. But you get the point. He goes on. If one, if, if one went simply by these instances, one might assume that high intelligence and bad military judgment always go together. However, it is not so simple as that. The English intelligentsia on the whole were more defeatist than the mass of the people. And some of them went on being defeatist at a time when the war was quite plainly being won partly because they were better able to visualize the dreary years of warhead that lay ahead. Their morale was worse because their imaginations were stronger. The quickest way of ending a war is to lose it, and if one finds the prospect of a long war intolerable, it is natural to disbelieve in the possibility of victory. But there was more to it than that. There was also the disaffection of large numbers of intellectuals which made it difficult for them not to side with any country hostile to Britain. And deepest of all, there was an admiration, though only in a very few cases, conscious admiration for the power, energy, and cruelty of the Nazi regime. It would be a useful, though tedious labor to go through the left-wing press and enumerate all the hostile references to Nazism during the years 1935 to 1945. One would find, I have little doubt, that they reached their high watermark in 1937-38, and 1944-45, and then and dropped off noticeably in the years from 39 to 42. That is during the period when Germany seemed to be winning. Now he goes on about this for a bit. I know I've read too much, but here's the, the, part, I wanted to, the part I wanted to read. Power worship blurs political judgment because it leads almost unavoidably to the belief 
that present trends will continue. Whoever is winning at the moment will always seem to be invincible. If the Japanese have conquered South Asia, then they will keep South Asia forever. If the Germans have captured, if the Germans have captured Tobruk, they will inf- infallibly capture Cairo. If the Russians are in Berlin, it will not be long before they are in London, and so on. This habit of mind leads also to the belief that things will happen more quickly, completely, and catastrophically than they ever do in practice. He goes on to point out about how power worship, and I think he's a little unfair to James Burnham, but not entirely unfair to James Burnham, because this is all I say about James Burnham. Um, He says that power worship is in part a kind of cowardice, and I really think that's true. Um, There are people who are really afraid of the idea that they might have to make an argument. They are really afraid of the idea that the people, that, the, the, the trends that they have aligned with may not be permanent. Um, this was sort of the, 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 the heart of the appeal for lots and lots of intellectuals for Marxism, was this idea that you no longer ha- you didn't really have to bother persuading people um, that, that socialism was good because socialism was inevitable thanks to the cold impersonal forces of scientific history. And, you know, and this was actually what gave the permission structure to the Bolsheviks to give up on trying to persuade people and actually just kill in a, inconvenient people so they could hasten the rise of the rise of, of true communism and all that. There's this tendency that we saw, uh, that we see, you see in politics all, all the time, you know, that the, you know, the ascendant of the, 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 the coalition of the ascendant stuff, the demography is destiny stuff. The, the Trumpism will live for, you know, decades to come. The Reich shall live for a thousand years. There is something very effective and demagogic about it that, you know, and I've written a bunch about the wrong side of history stuff, um, that it is, a, it is a way to convince people to lay down um, their objections and just get on the bandwagon. And there is something deeply, deeply attractive to these kinds of arguments for people because they absolve them of the, the requirement of actually making arguments. And they get to sort of uh, align themselves with, with what they believe is permanent power. And, um, and because they're aligned with it, uh, they get all sorts of perks and benefits and um, they become incredibly afraid of the idea that they might be wrong. And this kind of, you know, cowardice, it's sort of like, um, you know, that bit by Cicero, and I'm going to butcher it, where Cicero is talking about courage, and he says, courage is the most important virtue, um, because it is the one that comes into play for all the other virtues at their testing point. Um, if you don't have the courage to sort of stand by your positions, when you see everybody else fleeing those positions, um, that's a kind of cowardice. It's a surrender to the fierce urgency of now and getting aboard the bandwagon. And the tendency to make these straight-line predictions about power, um, you can see how it plays on the fears of people that they may be, you know, too late. It's sort of like, you know, no one wanted to be uh, the first person to stop clapping for Stalin. And... Um, what I'm really enjoying right now is watching the people who would never dream of, uh, of 
being the first person to stop clapping for Trump, um, being revealed as the only people left still clapping for Trump. And, uh, you know, they really deserve whatever they get in all of this. Um, anyway, uh, what else should we talk about? Oh, just one last thing on this Trump stuff. There's this great audio or there's this great video montage. I asked, um, Nick to find the audio of it, um, to put in here. There's this, uh, you know, the number of people who right now are say, are trafficking all sorts of you know ridiculous conspiracy theories about how the election was stolen. A lot of those people were condemning liberals uh, for trafficking conspiracy theories about how the election was stolen, and it's amazing how similar the arguments are. Um, so maybe we can play that audio. You have people out there calling for recounts that are unsubstantiated based on no evidence. This was a legitimate election mm -hmm. and no one should question the fact that Donald Trump is the president-elect. Hillary is on her, her sore loser tour and now we have her going through recounts. You know what she needs to do? She needs to get over it. She lost. Yeah. Get out of the way and let Donald Trump be president. Do you think the Democrats are sore losers? Yeah, I do. The reality is they're a bunch of spoiled crybabies. Newsflash for many of the partisan Democrats and those in the mainstream media who continue to try to delegitimize President-elect Trump's uh, massive and historic win last month. The election's over. Hillary Clinton lost. You have to win 270 electoral votes to be elected president, and President-elect Trump actually got 306. This is all really just an effort to try to delegitimize the win. The left's going to lie. The they're left's going to go be smirched. They're, they're going to go nuts crazy. Now. They can't accept the election results, let alone the fact that he's actually going to solve problems. They have to decide whether they're going to interfere with him finishing his business, interfere no. with the peaceful transition, transfer of power to President-elect Trump and Vice President-elect Pence, or if they're going to be a bunch of crybabies and sore losers about an election that they can't turn around. This is America. We live in a democracy. Everybody, when they woke up in the morning, is registered to vote, could go choose. So how about respecting the majority that also live here and their votes should count? Yeah. Brian, they're saying it's rigged. But they have absolutely no evidence that it's rigged. I don't even think we should give him the time of day. Uh, also, he's about to win. We know it's a matter of time, uh, about to win Michigan officially. So that would put uh, Donald Trump over the top with over 300 electoral votes. It was a blowout. Uh, well, it was a blowout. I just wonder what these Democrats are doing, trying to convince their electoral uh, representatives not to vote the way the people want There are six of them. Now there's these states which have a recount. We believe in free speech. We believe in accepting winners and not being sore losers. They have no actual proof of voter fraud or any wrongdoing, and both the White House and the Wisconsin Elections Commission have both said zero evidence whatsoever. Now, what happened to the peaceful transition of power and supporting the incoming administration? So the only reason I wanted to play that is, one, I think it's entertaining. You can probably guess who a lot of those voices are. They're all Republicans or conservative media types. Um, but the reason why I think, and I talked about this on the Dispatch podcast a little bit, one of the things I hear a lot from people, including some friends of mine, is the, and I talked about this with Guy Benson on his radio show, and I think you can get the audio because they, they act, to my surprise, they actually promoted it. They, um, there's this argument that you hear about Stacey Abrams refusing to concede in Georgia, about Hillary Clinton, you know, offering all of these harebrained reasons why she lost and saying Trump was not legitimate and all of the sort of, uh, hyper-partisan left-wing pundits talking forever about how the election was rigged for Trump and yada, yada, yada. And doesn't that make the people criticizing Trump hypocrites? And the short answer to that is 
Yes, it does. At least a lot of them. By all means, Adam Schiff, Hillary Clinton, Stacey Abrams, uh, you go down the long list, fine. They're all hypocrites. Um, but this is, I mean, this is the, the sort of defining characteristic of the Trump era is that um, people get so obsessed with hypocrisy. You know, I keep hearing these people say, you know, I don't want to hear about, you know, complaints about saying this election was illegitimate from the people who said Donald Trump's election was illegitimate. Well, okay. Um, but I don't want to hear from the people who condemned that rhetoric about his election being illegitimate, now all of a sudden condemning the people who are saying Trump's election is illegitimate, because that makes you a hypocrite too. You know, if you said this is an outrageous affront to democratic norms to question the legitimacy of the election, an election where Biden apparently has the same amount of electoral votes and more popular votes uh, than Trump did, and all these people said that was a landslide when Trump did it, and now they're saying it was stolen um, when Biden did it, you're a hypocrite too, right? I mean, if, if you condemn the other side for doing X and then out of payback, when the circumstances are reversed, you do X too, um, you know, you're just as bad as the people you're condemning. It's, it's, you know, it's like those stupid arguments during Supreme Court confirmation battles where everyone just lays down the arguments they made the last time the other party was in power um, and pick up the arguments that, you know, uh, they made the last time when the other party was powered and vice versa. You get what I mean, you know? And, uh, this is just another small example about why you should try to tell the truth regardless of which party is in power, because that way you're kind of safe from being called a hypocrite. Um, when the, you know, when the tables are turned. And so I just have, I'm so exhausted with all these people and particularly on the stolen election stuff where, you know, the only thing that keeps changing are, is the evidence, right? Because every time they come up with some evidence that gets utterly debunked, either in front of a judge or just with the real facts, um, they don't change their theory. They just go sniffing around for new evidence. You know, and there was this Kim Strassel tweet from earlier today where she tweets out her column about how, you know, the, she says the election was rigged before, you know, before it even started. And she spends a lot of time talking about something that Nancy Pelosi tried to do in uh, 2018 that failed in terms of like encouraging absentee ballots and all that kind of stuff. And at least she acknowledges, which a lot of people don't, that the reason why we had absentee ballots to such a great extent this time wasn't to steal the election, um, but because we had a pandemic. I mean, I can't tell you how many pieces I read from conservatives out there trying to defend Trump saying, oh, you know, the the you know, the, it's so suspicious that all these absentee ballots came in Democrat and they don't even mention that the reason why they extended absentee and early voting was because of a pandemic. They just sort of make it sound like this was some sort of nefarious plot and it's so deranged and non-falsifiable. I mean, whenever you start with your conclusion, um, and then you're, you'll backfill cherry picking facts or alleged facts to fit it, you can never falsify it. And I just find it so exhausting. Um, what else? Oh, here's a fun thing since I'm looking at this Orwell thing. And I was going to talk about Garrity's, uh, Jim, uh, my buddy Jim Garrity has a good piece in the, the new issue of National Review. I got to digest it a bit more, so I won't talk about it at length. But he makes a really interesting point that I'm not sure goes as far as he thinks it does 
that um, uh, Trump wasn't stabbed in the back by the never Trumpers because there wasn't enough plausible, identifiable never Trump vote to actually flip more than 11 electoral votes. And that wouldn't be enough for Trump to win. Um, so other stuff was going on. And I agree with him in the sense that uh, it does absolve to a certain extent the anti-Trump Republicans, and he has these metrics for how he identifies them. But I think it gives a little short shrift to the, the actual substance of the argument that, that forget never Trump, that anti-Trump people were making. It wasn't simply that Trump would lose because um, he lost the votes of people like me, which he never had, right? Um, I wrote in um, Mitch Daniels this time around um, because, uh, you know, he's much less of a disappointment than that guy I, I, I wrote in in 2016. Um, but, uh, um, it gives short shrift to the, the sort of the broader argument. I think I got, again, I want to reread it and Jim's a smart guy and I know we all, he argues in good faith. Um, but you know, part of the argument sort of going back to this thing I was talking about how power invites, how every action invites a, a reaction. Um, it wasn't just that Trump was go- the, the way Trump governed was going to lose him. I mean, I never, I never grounded any of this in like, oh, the reason why Trump shouldn't do this is because it'll keep him from getting reelected. Um, that's completely contrary to sort of where I came down in all of this. I argued that he shouldn't govern the way he governed because he was unfit for office and it was a bad way to govern. Um, but part of the sort of analytical point that a lot of us made was that the way he governed was going, you know, if you spend four years trolling the libs and only pandering to your base, you're going to invite a counter reaction that is going to punish you for it and punish Republicans for it. Now I was, I was largely wrong about how punished Republicans were going to be. Um, but you know, the, the never Trump argument to the extent it's not the Lincoln project grift stuff and all that, or the Jen Rubin craziness, um, but the serious sort of anti-Trump argument was that, um, in terms of sort of just punditry, was that what Trump was doing was not just bad on the merits, but it was bad politics because presidents are supposed to try to expand their coalition for a second term, and he did nothing along those lines. The fact that the specific Republicans who split tickets weren't enough to uh, cost Trump the election leaves out the sort of dynamic scoring of it that a lot of Democrats and gettable independents saw, um, and a lot of the suburbanites, you know, who may or may not have identified with Republicans, but they were gettable for Republicans. They saw so many Republicans saying, look, I can't validate this. I can't legitimize this. I'm out. And that's a powerful political signal to people, including to a lot of Democrats. And, um, and I'm not sure that's captured in, in all of Jim's argument, but again, I want to look at it more closely. What I was going to say is, um, and I just, because I don't know the next time I'm going to be able to talk about Bruno Rizzi in a remotely relevant way. Bruno Rizzi was, um, a very obscure communist intellectual that I've always had a weird interest in because for some unknown reason, a hardcover version of his book showed up at my house when I was a teenager. Um, we got an enormous number of 
uh, review copy books because of my dad's line of work. He ran a, a news syndicate and and my and also because my mom was a literary agent. So we just were always awash in books coming in. And it's this, I have it somewhere in my office in here. It's this really slim book. Um, it was really a pamphlet and it was called The Bureau- Bureaucratization of the World. And um, part of, uh, um, um, it was originally written, I think in, in, yeah, it was originally written in French. Um, but he was an Italian communist and I guess a lot of Italian communists wrote in French and, you know, one of the things that frustrates me about the deep state conversation is I wrote a lot about deep state stuff in, in, uh, suicide of the West. And, you know, and I wrote even more that we cut out because it was just the book, the original manuscript was so long. And I, I wrote about Rizzi a bit. Um, and the reason why I'm bringing up Rizzi is that um, uh, Rizzi was, I should explain who James Burnham was, right? So Orwell wrote this essay, Second Thoughts on James Burnham. James Burnham wrote, um, his most influential book was uh, The Managerial Revolution. Um, his second most famous book was called Suicide of the West which, you know, uh, is my book is, is called the same thing partly as an homage, even though my book draws more from, uh, managerial revolution probably than suicide of the West, although suicide of the West had an impact on me as well. Um, but regardless, James Vernon is a fascinating, fascinating guy. Um, former, very high ranking communist. Um, I believe he was the editor or at least an editor of the daily worker. Um, in the United States, uh, in close contact with Lenin and Trotsky and all these guys. Um, and he eventually moved right and became one of the founding editors of National Review. And I won't do my whole spiel about the myth that only neocons were former socialists or communists because the National Review masthead has far more and far more important uh, communists or I should say ex-communists on it than the ranks of the neocons ever did. That's a, I ranted about that on a episode of the remnant a long time ago. And, um, I, you know, and I, I reserve the right to rant about it again. Um, but, uh, anyway, Burnham found this weird track by this guy Rizzi and was so fascinated by it. Um, that he incorporated a lot of its argument in the managerial revolution. Now, the basic argument in Rizzi, which is also made by a lot of other students of the new class, you can find it in Schumpeter, you can find it in, um, you know, in a host of, of intellectuals of, of the, from the 1940s to the 1970s. Um, but Rizzi was one of the first, and his argument was, was that we were seeing in the Soviet Union in particular the rise of something new. In classic Marxist theory, you have a ruling class that is basically either in the feudal system, the aristocracy, which owns the means of production, right? Because it's basically um, an agrarian, serf-driven economy. And I don't mean serf like tubular. I mean serf like road to serfdom serf. Um, and, uh, And then with the rise of capitalism, the older aristocracy is replaced by um uh, the industrialists, right? The, and the holders of capital, the bankers, the factory owners. 
and all that. And they replace the old aristocracy and they actually run things, not the politicians who are basically lickspittles and servants to the, the true holders of capital and all that. And, um, and Ritzy noticed that in the Soviet Union, we were starting to see something new um, and kind of fascinating. We were seeing how um, uh, for the first time in history, the ruling class did not actually have property. They were um, essentially bureaucrats. Um, they were uh, planners. They were members of the Communist Party, you know, which had the, um, which was sort of the avant-garde of the proletariat in, in Lenin's formulation. And this, you know, and I, I'm not sure it was truly new. I mean, I'd have to read up more on the bureaucrats of the, of like of ancient China, but it was it was largely new. Certainly in the modern era, it was new. And his argument about the in the bureaucratization of the world or la bureaucratization du monde um, was that uh, we had moved from a um, that the that the, the the bureaucrats had basically had a dictatorship over the proletariat because they had a monopoly on state power. And, um, you know, and got to remember in one party states, the party is the state and drives the state. And, um, anyway, so it's an interesting argument. Uh, I never read in the original French, I assure you. Um, but, uh, but James Burnham was fascinated by it and he incorporated a lot of it in the managerial revolution. And, um, uh, and then the person who was, really fascinated by it was uh, George Orwell. And Orwell um, wrote a bunch about it. And, um, and that pissed off Trotsky because Trotsky um, hated this idea. Um, uh, he didn't like the new class idea at all. And, um, uh, and Trotsky, uh, and I believe Orwell, I'm just doing this from memory, got into a big fight about this stuff. And um, the fight between Trotsky and Orwell over Burnham and by extension Ritzy's argument um, was where uh, Orwell got the inspiration for 1984, uh, the novel. And... Um, you know, it's one of these like fun. I mean, I, again, I know I'm a geek, so I, I like pulling these threads about intellectual history back. Um, and, uh, you know, I know a lot of you haven't heard of Ritzy. Quite a few have never heard of James Burnham. Um, but I think everybody has heard of 1984. And that's sort of where it comes from. It's not as cool as the thing I discovered when I was writing about the movie They Live, um, when I discovered that the author of the short story that They Live was based on. Um, his, he was a science fiction writer and his real, his biggest claim to fame was that he invented the propeller beanie. Um, but it's something. And so anyway, the reason why I, I, I brought this up because I was looking at the Orwell thing and it reminded me of it, but, um, also like this new class stuff and this, uh, deep state stuff, I actually find really, really, really fascinating. And, um, and there's a serious argument about the deep state, um, not the conspiratorial mumbo jumbo stuff that, you know, is basically, uh, 
you know, that works backwards from Trump's failures and says, okay, he must have been, you know, uh, undermined by, by the, the, the fifth column deep staters. But the, 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 the more serious argument about the role of the administrative state, um, Philip Hamburger's book, Is Administrative Law Lawful? is fascinating and really interesting. And he's more hardcore about this stuff than I am. Um, and, you know, there is, there's a serious argument that the administrative state, by which I mean the sort of unelected bureaucrats who have given themselves tenure, who have entrenched themselves in the bureaucracy, who in some cases have given themselves the power to tax, even though that's explicitly unconstitutional, at least by my light, um, that, that you know, this is a profound violation of the, the spirit and the intent of the Constitution, and it's dangerous. And I highly recommend Charles Murray's book, By the People, which gets into some of this. Government bureaucrats even have their own set of law that protects them in ways that no one else is protected. Uh, the administrative law courts have completely different rules of jurisprudence. I mean, I shouldn't say completely, I'm not a lawyer, but from a layman's point of view, um, you know, when you don't have the same rules about the presumption of innocence, when you give automatic deference to the accused because the accused are bureaucrats and we can get into the Chevron stuff, uh, that's not how normal courts work. That's not how normal, you know, civil liability stuff works. That's not how criminal procedure works. And I think there's a lot of really, really interesting stuff in there. And um, it doesn't mean it's, we live under a dictatorship, but it's something to pay attention to. And by my lights, it's something that should be fixed. And, um, but I see that I have been now talking for like an hour and 10 minutes. So I won't talk about fixing it and I won't get deeper in the weeds on that. But by all means, um, if you're interested in this stuff, I can certainly yammer about it more. Um, I had these notes about this other stuff I was going to talk about and I've just decided I can't do it. So uh, there's that. I'm off to, I'm out of town at the beginning of next week. I don't know how that will affect some things, but we'll figure it out. And um Thanks again to everybody who participated in the What's Next event. I highly recommend uh, watching or listening to my conversation with Ben Sass. Um, I also did this panel on institutions with Yuval and Andy Smerick and Jack Goldsmith that I thought was pretty great, um, or at least pretty interesting by my lights. A lot of people liked it. Um, if you want to stab yourself in the thigh with a ballpoint pen, I very much recommend listening to the Reince Priebus one. and. Um, other than that, I'll see you next time.